Orange Church, we have such fond memories. When my son and I were parking the car this morning, we remembered when we used to bring our guide dog in training, Hero. And he would sit here in the front pew and fall asleep and... He was just a regular member of the church, and we're so grateful because at first we worried whether it was a good idea to bring the dog to church, but you were also welcoming. And so as far as we know, Hero continues with his owner living in Texas, near the University of Texas, and he's doing well. So anyway, it's good to be back, and it's good to be among family and friends, and you know, When you get together with folks and your friends and your family, you think you know each other. But the reality is that a lot of times we know each other, but we don't know about each other. So I figured that I would briefly share a little bit of my background um, because it'll come into play in what we're going to talk about in a little bit. I was born in Santa Barbara here in California, not that far away from here. I was born to Mexican, farm-working Catholic parents. And the reason I was born in Santa Barbara, I'm very proud of my hometown, it's a very pretty place, but the reason I was born there was because my father was brought to Santa Barbara to work. He was part of the Bracero program. It was a labor contract program years ago where they would go to Mexico and they'd bring farm workers here to do the work in the fields. So my dad was one of those people. And it so happened that Sunkist had offices in Santa Barbara and there were also orange and lemon groves in Santa Barbara so he was brought there to pick oranges and lemons. One of the supervisors on the field got to talking to my dad one day and found out that my dad had also been a cook on a fishing vessel off the coast of Mexico. So he was asked if he would be willing to go into the kitchen and cook for all the men who were here, the labor contractor, the labor contracted men who were here, the braceros. And my dad agreed to do that. So he worked for them for a number of years and then sun-kissed then sponsored him and gave him that letter that he needed for immigration. So my father was able to get his green card, went to Mexico and married my wife and brought her back, back in the day when you can get a green card in 24 hours at the border. So my mom became a legal resident of this country, and my brother and I were born in Santa Barbara. So that was our beginning My parents worked very hard in the fields. We later moved to Oxnard, and I have very vague memories of Oxnard. I remember the big truck coming into the barrio where we lived to pick up all the people who were going to work in the fields. I remember my parents getting on that truck, and they would go out to pick tomatoes and strawberry and lettuce and celery. I have vague memories of that. I remember my parents had decided that we were in this country, in the U.S., and we believed in the American dream. We believed in working hard and getting ahead, but we needed a plan. And my parents figured that in order to achieve this dream, we were going to work at it together. So my dad decided that number one 
for his family, the Rubio family, which is my maiden name, no relation to the politician, by the way. But we decided, my dad decided that he would develop this plan. And first of all, we would be the fam- a family that would not lose its identity. We needed to know where we came from. We needed to know our roots. We needed to know who we were. So in order to make that happen, I remember my mom, she loves history, especially Mexican history, and she loves poetry. And I remember that our bedtime stories were not maybe the typical bedtime stories, but they were stories about Mexican history. So at bedtime, my brother and I learned about the Aztec Empire. We learned about a famous Mexican president named Benito Juarez. He was a man who was a Zapotec Indian. By the way, we also learned about the other Indian tribes of Mexico, Mexico, the Mayas, the Zapotecas, and the Tarahumaras. And Benito Juarez happened to be Zapoteca. He grew up in a very poor home. But he got ahead. Education was the ticket for him. He became an attorney and later a politician and the president of Mexico, the one who ushered in reform, the one who curtailed the power of the Catholic Church and the corrupt military, and in 1855 declared that all the citizens of Mexico would be considered equal before the law. I learned about the great Mexican Revolution. I learned about Pancho Villa and Emiliano Zapata. Zapata's famous words, I would rather die on my feet than live on my knees. We needed to know who we were and where we came from. I needed to know that that was part of my identity. Second of all, The Rubio family would not lose its language. My dad knew that we were in a country where everyone spoke English, and I do remember that my parents took turns, because my brother and I were little, so they would take turns going to adult school at night. It was very difficult to go out and work in the fields and then try to study English at night at adult school. But they did that for a period of time. But they knew that we would learn English quicker than they would. And my dad was determined that in our home, there would be good communication. Parents and kids were going to be able to communicate with each other. So this is the rule he laid down. He said, inside this house, this is Mexican territory. And no one, absolutely no one, is going to speak English. This is Mexico. Aquí se habla español. He said, once you walk out the front door, you're in the U.S. and fend for yourselves the best you can. And that's how it worked. I remember going to kindergarten for the first time and not knowing that my name was Patricia. No one had ever called me that in my whole life. My name was Patti. That's all I knew. So the teacher called my dad in and said, hey, you need to teach your daughter her name. So I learned that my name was Patricia, and next time they called kids to go to the sandbox, I knew that when they said Patricia, I would go to the sandbox. All right, so number three, the third thing that was very, very important to my parents is that the Rubio family needed to be a family united. 
that we were going to achieve this American dream united, that we were going to work hard together, we were going to value hard work and education, and that if someone in the family was in need, we were all in need. If someone in the family had a success, we were all successful. And we were going to respect each other, we were going to care for each other, and we were going to honor our parents. Because my mom ingrained in my head that that is the only commandment with a promise. And it tells you that it has a promise that God will bless you in the land where you are. Well, we were in this land, and we were going to achieve the American dream. So we needed to respect our parents, work hard, and get an education. And my dad, in his humble, farm-working mentality and his love for this country and for his family, said to us, go get an education because that's how you serve God and serve others. I remember he decided that he was going to give us a taste of what it was like to work in the field. So my brother and I had the opportunity to go pick onions in the fields for a summer. And I don't know if it was the blisters on my hands or the hot, ugly, sweaty way I felt at the end of the day or the backache that I had at the end of the summer that helped me to gain a very deep respect for the campesino, for the farm worker. And I learned that my dad was right. Education was the ticket. Working in the fields, being a farm working family would not be that final punctuation mark for our family. And you know, I tell you this because I'm excited about scripture. I'm excited about what I read in the biblical narrative. These were the brushstrokes that paint the portrait of my family, a family that with God's help and motivated by our mission and vision, we would achieve our goals in this foreign land, in this country, in the United States of America. But there is something that excites me about reading the Bible, the biblical narrative in Acts, especially in chapter 2. I identify with its message. I identify with Acts. I resonate with the idea that I find in those verses about mission and vision and service and unity. I resonate with the idea of working together as family. I resonate with the idea of working hard, working together to achieve the dream. It's a message where all of God's children are called. It's a message where all of God's children are equipped to work together. No one in the family is excluded. I identify with the message where God, through the Holy Spirit, infuses people with power and courage and a sense of mission, a mission where everyone is is included. It's a mission for everyone because the gospel of Jesus Christ is for everyone because Jesus is the Savior of all people. The gospel of Jesus Christ for everyone, because Jesus is a savior of all people, is the central message of the book of Acts. 
the beauty of this piece of scripture is that it paints a portrait of a family where everyone is included. The book of Acts gives special attention to the Holy Spirit behind the ministry of Jesus. It gives special attention to the power of the Holy Spirit within the church and the fulfillment of his promises for humanity. There are flavors of inclusiveness, of unity, of bonding. Acts is, focuses on all people, including the marginalized. Everyone is included. The sinner, the outcast, the poor, the Gentile, even the Samaritan. And Luke, more than any biblical writer, takes care to portray women as vital participants in the community of faith. Unlike the religious structure of the day, the kingdom of God is a broad community, a community in which everyone, even the least likely participant, is treated equally and is included. The book of Acts is not just a story of what has happened in the past. It's a story about what will happen and what is happening in the future. It is the prophecy of what comes in the future. You see, the characteristics of the early church, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the rapid spread of the gospel, that gives us a clear picture of God's plan. It is an amazing and spectacular plan, a plan that outlines the most efficient and the most effective method for reaching the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I want to take a look at Acts chapter 2, but before we go there, I want to talk a little bit, I want to set the stage a little bit with Acts chapter 1. If you recall, in in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is ready to ascend to heaven, and he tells his disciples, you need to wait. You need to go back to Jerusalem and wait. Don't leave Jerusalem because you need to wait for the gift that my father has promised. This is a gift that I have talked to you about. And after a few days, the Holy Spirit will come to you. He tells the disciples, John the Baptist has baptized you with water. But in a few days, you will be baptized. You will be immersed with the Holy Spirit. And the disciples gathered around him and said, Lord, is this the moment, is this the time when you're going to restore the kingdom, the kingdom to Israel? They had spent three years with Jesus, and they didn't get it. Their priority was, again, about restoring a kingdom to Israel. It wasn't about inclusiveness for them. It was about them. And Jesus responds to them and says, It's not for you to know the time and the dates the Father has set by his own authority. In other words, that was a nice, sweet way of Jesus saying, that's not your business. And that has never been our business and should never be our business, even when we're studying eschatology. That is not our business, and God, that's his business. 
And so then Jesus points out, but here is your business. Let me tell you what the priority is. The priority is that you will receive power, not a timeline. You will receive power from the Spirit. When the Spirit comes on you, upon you, you will be my witnesses, not just to Israel. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, where I was tortured and crucified. You will be my witnesses in Judea, where I was rejected. And you will be my witnesses in Samaria, the place where discrimination is just there. People considered Samaritans half-breeds. You will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. So this is the conversation that Jesus has with his disciples He ascends to heaven, and the minute Jesus ascends to heaven, that marks the beginning of the last days. They are now waiting. They're in a wait pattern, but they do what Jesus says. So let's go to Acts chapter 2, and I think we can put it up on the screen. And I'm excited about Acts chapter 2 because when I was reading this scripture, There are certain words that just jumped out at me, and it just made me really excited about reading this. Notice the recurring theme. Notice the flavor of inclusiveness in this biblical text, and let's read it together. When the day of Pentecost, and by the way, Pentecost was a holiday on the calendar of ancient Israel. That was a holiday. It was the day when people came together to celebrate the giving of the law at Sinai. So people had come from all parts to come and celebrate this special day. So when when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Not some of them. Each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, as the Spirit enabled them. So imagine the moment. Live that moment with me. This sound of a violent wind just fills the place, and these tongues of fire separate, and they rest on people's heads. No one has ever witnessed anything like this. And I imagine that the disciples and Peter is watching what's going on, and wondering, and thinking, and some in the group are like, ah, they're drunk. And all of a sudden, Peter, infused with the Holy Spirit, stands up with the 11 disciples and says, no, wait a minute, There's nobody's drunk here. This is what we were waiting for. This is the gift that we were waiting for. And the next, ch- and the next verses 
When Peter breaks out in sermon, he says, this is what we were expecting. These are the words spoken by the prophet Joel in verse 17. Then he remembered this prophecy and says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. The context of this piece of scripture makes it clear that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was not limited. It was not limited to an exclusive group of people. All of them were filled. All of them shared in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that took place that day. Had it not happened that way, then Peter would have had a very difficult time applying the text found in Joel. Had it not happened the way it did, Peter could not have brought up Joel and said, it's for everyone. You're young and old, men and women, all of us participate. All of them shared. God's purpose is clear. His desire is to equip us all. His desire is to empower all of us, his children, sons and daughters. No one in the family is excluded. And it's evident that in his plan, we are all participants in the extraordinary work of reaching every nation, tribe, tongue, and people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Joel's prophecy talks about an amazing outpouring of the Holy Spirit where God ignores all differences and all distinctions and his sovereign power works through every heart willing to participate in the proclamation of the gospel. Throughout history, we see some of the sad realities of our tendencies, of our pride. We tend to to focus on differences. We tend to focus on prejudice. We are all about hierarchies and those things that exclude and separate and divide. In biblical times, women and children didn't count. In biblical times, if you were a Samaritan or a Gentile, well, then you were out of luck. And if you were a special needs person or um, had an incurable disease, well, then you know what? You were really out of luck because God is really mad at you because you're this terrible sinner, and your parents and your grandparents are probably horrible sinners too. But Jesus, Jesus showed us a different way. He came to turn the status quo and this world's crazy traditions and rules upside down. The point Luke seems to be making here is that the gospel is radically different. It defies expectation, because in God's economy, the poor are rich, the weak are strong, the last are first, and in God's economy, women have a very special place in ministry. God has called women to participate as well. 
Ladies, God is calling us to have a special place to participate in mission. And I believe that women across the globe are saying yes, yes to God's call. They are saying, Lord, here I am too. Women anointed by the Holy Spirit and working together in the family of God to share the gospel, it's not a new idea. It's not innovative. It's not innovation. It's restoration. It's restoration to God's plan, God's original plan, a plan clearly delineated in the book of Acts. It's an effective plan that includes the entire family. No one is left out. It's an extraordinary plan that brings extraordinary results. Because if you look further into the chapter in verse 41, the Bible tells us that about 3,000, 3,000, can you imagine that? 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is a good plan. It's an amazing plan. And any other plan gives us mediocre results. Our church is in the midst of what has become an ugly and mean-spirited debate over the issue of women's ordination. This summer at general conference session, the final vote will be taken. But after all the votes are counted and the decision is made, what happens next? I pray. I pray that my kids and their kids will belong to a church that is not defined by limitations or a mentality that excludes. I pray that they will belong to a church that cares about them, that loves them, that affirms them, and that empowers them to become radical followers of Jesus Christ. Followers that will be agents of hope and compassion in this world. We are one in Christ, and it is upon the diversity of God's united people that the Holy Spirit descends and empowers everyone without exclusion. And this is how the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is shared effectively. There has never been, nor will there ever be, anything as phenomenal as the gospel of Jesus Christ. A a a man named Jesus stepped into this world, a world filled with hate and racism and social and socioeconomic divisions and prejudice to a world where women and children didn't count. Jesus came, and he came with an unparalleled message to say, you all matter, you are all important. A message of freedom and equality and salvation. On this special day, 
when you celebrate women's ministry and the ways in which God is working through all the wonderful ladies of this church, I want you to know, ladies, that you are special, that you are important in God's work. You are needed. You are beautiful. And God is calling you to continue to serve him. I am inspired and affirmed in ministry by great women of the Bible, like Deborah. We've talked about her here in the past. A prophet, a judge, a military commander, a counselor, a wife. I'm inspired by Huldah, a prophet during the reign of the king Josiah, a tough little kid, incredible. God used him and he stood for God. I'm inspired by Ruth, an extraordinary Moabite woman who left all of her traditions behind and said, I will follow God. And she later becomes the ancestor to David and Jesus. Esther, a Jewish girl, used by God to save her people from an imminent holocaust. The New Testament underscores underscores women like Mary and Elizabeth, women willing to be part of God's divine plan to bring salvation to this world. There were women who followed Jesus closely during his ministry, women who loved him, and he loved them as well. There were women who stood by his side unconditionally. And then there's the Samaritan woman, a woman who had an encounter with Jesus Christ. And then following that encounter, she is filled with courage and determination, and she goes back to be the greatest witness to her people. The Bible tells us that many believed in Jesus because of her witness. The Bible tells us of women who were present at Jesus' tomb, women who were fearless, I guess because since they didn't matter in society, What did they have to fear? They could show up at Jesus' tomb without fear, but they went there because they loved him, because they cared. There are women like Priscilla, a businesswoman from Philippi, a woman who hears the gospel and is baptized, and she takes the torch from Paul and spreads the gospel of Jesus Christ across Europe. In the last chapter of Romans, Paul recommends several people who have worked tirelessly with him in ministry, and a third of the people on his list are women. But these are not just awesome stories about the past. You see, God continues to to call us to collaborate with him, to participate with him in ministry, wherever we are, whomever we are, God can use us for his glory. July 16, 2015, marks a very special occasion for us. It's the 100th anniversary of the death of our pioneer, 
our prophet, our author, and pastor, Ellen G. White. I have a slide of her that maybe we can put up. She was an amazing woman. She was a woman filled with the Holy Spirit who came to turn her world upside down. This young girl said yes to God's call to ministry. She said yes to God. She was a woman who spoke with authority and worked tirelessly so that the world would know about Jesus Christ. And God continues to call his people to join him. History reflects that a number of ladies have responded to the call just like Ellen White. In the next slide, you'll see a picture of an amazing lady. Her name, Ruth Janetta Temple, the first black woman to graduate from Loma Linda's College of Medical Evangelists. Her ministry was all about dedicating her life as a physician to help patients in underserved communities in L.A. She made such a profound impact in her community that in 1983, the East L.A. Health Center was renamed. It is now called the Dr. Ruth Temple Health Center. The next lady up on the screen, Rebecca Liu. She's a pastor in the country of China. In the Sichuan province, there are 10,000 Adventists in a population of 100 million. There are 400 churches and four pastors. And of the four, three are women. You see, when you live in a communist country, even though they call it open communism today, when you live in communism, it doesn't matter who you are. We need to get to work because there is so much work to be done. In communism, it doesn't matter. There are three women working tirelessly long hours for the only purpose to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this lady, Rebecca, says, God loves China. So I will work with him, and I will do whatever it is that he calls me to do. You see, Rebecca... Um, decided that she was going to take a leap of faith. She showed up at Andrews without sponsorship and without financial backing and said, we need training, and I'm here to get training. And by God's grace, God is so kind and merciful. She was able to complete her master's and doctor of ministry degree at the Adventist Seminary at Andrews, and she has now returned to China to train her colleagues. There are approximately 100 pastors in China, only 100, and the majority of them are not able to get additional training. They are not able to go to seminary training. And the list goes on. Let me share with you Georgia Burgess. She was a missionary to India for 40 years, and she left this country with only $80 in her pocket. Anna Stahl has a special place in my heart. She was a nurse, educator, and pioneer missionary to South America, to the country of Peru. And my mother-in-law was born into her arms. Anna Rosa Alvarado, a Cuban pastor, evangelist, and educator. Margaret Prong, 
She's a German pastor and evangelist. Leona Running, she died last year, 2014. She was a professor of biblical languages at the seminary at Andrews University. She knew 17 ancient languages and just about every single pastor in the North American division that has been through seminary has taken a class with her. What an amazing woman. And the list goes on and on about what God is wanting to do in our church and our community of faith to bring the family together to tell us, look, guys, we are going to achieve the dream, but we need to be a family united. We need to work together. We need to know our identity. We need to know where we come from, and we need to work hard to share this gospel, to let people know about the one who brings salvation who can bring salvation to them. You know, a week ago Friday, we had a phenomenal event at the Azure Hills Church. I still can't get over what I saw that Friday. And this is a testament of what happens when we unleash people, when we unleash our young people to do God's work. There was one of the young people, a high schooler, in Dante's uh, youth group. And he came to him and he said, Pastor Dante, what if we did something different? What if, you know, the academies do their thing, they go to Bible camp, they do all this stuff, and then public schools sometimes they don't get together with the academy, and so there's this gap, and on and on. He says, what if we created a Vespers where everyone comes together, public school, homeschool, academies, absolutely everyone. And we have different praise teams, and it doesn't matter if no one has to audition. If you want to sing and you can play an instrument, we can do this. And we just bring everyone together, include everyone. What if... What if we did this? And so Dante decided, okay, if this is what you want to do, this is what you will do. It will be an event for kids, by the kids, and there will be no adult there to tell you how to do it, when to do it, and unpack it for you. This is what you'll do. I will support you with whatever you want to do. It was a complete experiment. These kids got together, and they said, we're going to do this Vespers, and it'll be on Memorial Day weekend on that Friday. So one of the adults who had heard about it said, it's not going to work. It's a holiday weekend. No one will be around. But we decided, hey, the kids want to do it then. Let them do it then. Then the kids said, we want to do a Vespers, a three-hour Vespers. And the adult said, that's too long. The kids are, you're going to lose control of the kids, and they're not going to want to be there in the church for three hours. And so we said, let them if they want to do it. So they said, we'd like to have food. So we did help them pay for the food. So we said, you tell us what kind of food you want. So they gave us a list, and we went shopping, and we got people to help us provide the food. They, Our church has... 
like four wings. So it would be like these two wings and then two more on the sides. And so the kids on the night of, they had prepared. They had, they had what they called three movements. The first hour was the first movement with praise and worship, drama, a, a student preacher, and then more singing. And then the second movement, the third movement was the same. They had one break to eat, and then they had a short five-minute break to stand up at the end of the second movement, and then they went to eat at the very end of the Vespers. So we thought, okay, we don't know what to expect. They got on social media, spread the word, and then they said, we need to pick a theme. And they sat and they brainstormed, and at the end of it, they said, okay, we're going to call this Renaissance. Why Renaissance? And here's what they came up with. Renaissance literally means a rebirth. It's a period in history that brought about change, cultural change. It was an influence that was felt in literature, in art, philosophy, religion, the science, everything. It was a rebirth. And they said to us, we need a revival. These are teenagers telling us, we need a revival. So let's call this Vespers Renaissance 2015. And you're looking at a picture there. The kids cordoned off the the side pews because we figured, ah, we'll get about maybe 100, 200 kids. I was doing a Bible study in another part of the church, and when I finished, I finished about half an hour into their program. I walked into the church, and I could not believe my eyes. There were 700 kids in the church with about 25 adult looky-loos. I could not believe what I was seeing. Kids had come from Newberry Park, from San Diego, San Fernando, Orange County. They had come from all over the place. Our senior pastor was there at the very beginning and couldn't believe it. He had a speaking engagement and left. He came back towards the end and he said, I couldn't park my car. I had to drive around and see if kids were were standing around outside in the parking lot. He saw not one kid, not one kid. They were all inside worshiping and praising, yes, in their own way, but they were in the church, in the sanctuary. And maybe we can turn the next slide. I just want to give you a flavor of what was happening. They all got their T-shirts. They were singing. Go ahead to the next slide. That was one of our student preachers. And when he got up there and he told the kids, guys, if you get invited to a party or Vespers, choose Vespers. And he preached. He was such a powerful preacher. Again, calling kids to revival. Let's do the next one. And this is out by our pond area where kids were eating and fellowshipping together. And then the next slide shows you the group of kids, 10 kids, who came together to make this happen. But it all began with two powerful words from someone, a kid who came and said, hey, Pastor Dante, what if, what if powerful words spoken by those who dream big, what if the people of God joined together where no one, absolutely no one is excluded, all of us in an environment of unity, 
What if we truly relive that day of Pentecost where we are united in worship, in prayer, and in mission? What if?